Together with our differences, together we are bolder, braver, stronger. Once upon a time, you were 25, walking up the aisle, you made the promise of life, blinked twice and you were 29, singing lullabies, and I looked up at you for the first time, words fall short, but I am sure.
Once upon a time, you were 25. Walking up the aisle, you made the promise of life. Blink twice, and you were 29. Singing lullabies. And I looked up at you for the first time. Words fall short, but I am sure. Father, even when I'm scared, and when someone's in trouble, I'll never leave them there. And I love like my mother, like there's nothing to lose. You're my unsung hero, and I sing this song for you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome, welcome. Come and find a seat. We're going to get started. We praise God for a brand new day of life and the day that he has given us. And so, as we're reminded in the word, this is the day that our Lord has made. So we are to rejoice and be glad in this day. Um, today is unique. It's a day like uh, no other day. And it's a day where we uh, set aside the first day of the week to gather in this place to worship God. We're going to worship God in many different ways this morning, of course, through his word. I'm about to read from God's word as our call to worship. We're going to worship the Lord through music in just a moment as well and lift our voices, raise holy hands, as the Bible says, and give God all the glory. 
And of course, we're going to uh, worship, bring our worship to God by opening his word and learning from it and studying it, learning and growing and serving together today. So I, um, I just trust that you had a good week. And as we take Sundays to kind of reflect on the week past and look forward to a new week, you know, a big part of what we do, church, when we gather on a Sunday morning is to encourage each other. So hopefully you've been blessed and encouraged already. If you've just kind of walked in, take an opportunity to do that uh, during our greet one another or afterwards, because we need to be reminded often, don't we, that God is alive and at work. And when we hear the testimony of others and what God has been doing, well, it just it just gives us that um, it gives us that great encouragement, you know, to know to say, okay, things might be going on in my life and struggling a bit, but yes, God is alive and at work, and it's a truth that we know and believe, but we need to be reminded of it, and so it's a big part of what we do on Sundays. Uh, and so, what I'd like to do now is read from Psalm 19 as uh, a call to worship, as an encouragement from His Word. And in um, Psalm 19, we hear these words describing parts of God's creation being alive and calling out to him. And I was reminded of how just recently, you know, we, we of course, last week, Easter, and, and before that, Palm Sunday, and we're reminded of Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. And, you know, he is, he is uh, riding on a donkey, and people are shouting, Hosanna, right? Save us, save us now, Lord. And all the religious leaders told Jesus, you better stop these followers from doing that. Remember what Jesus did when he responded? And he basically said, like, if they don't, even these rocks will cry out, right? Because he is to be praised. And so we kind of have that as this idea in Psalm 19 about all of God's wonderful creation, um, crying out in worship to him. So listen to what it says, Psalm 19, the first few verses. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Church, would you stand with me now? I want to pray us into a time of worship. And we want to declare the glory of God right alongside the heavens and all of his creation because the testimony of God's good handiwork should be an encouragement to us to give him glory as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this new day of life. Thank you for this great privilege to be able to worship together. And Father, we have come here not to receive, but to give, to surrender our will to yours and to give you worship. 
to give you praise and honor and glory. So Lord, now as we do that, would you even in these next few moments just prepare our hearts and minds so that as we sing these songs, the music would stir our souls and the words that we sing, the truth of those words would sink deep into our hearts. Father God, we stand before you now, before your matchless throne of grace, and we say thank you, and we now worship as a response to your goodness in our lives, for you are mighty and you are great, and we say thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's worship him together. The splendor of the King, clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide. It trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. Yeah. 
Praise God. Jesus is in the midst of the fire with us. Amen. Encourage somebody another, somebody right now with those words. Say good morning to each other and encourage them. Good to see great fellowship in this place. So you say good morning to one another. You uh, make your way back to your seats. And uh, the kids have made their way down to their classes. So we thank you for them. Uh, we encourage you. I remember we have our coffee fellowship. It's available every Sunday. Uh, starting at 945, you come in, grab a, a cup of coffee and enjoy some good fellowship and conversation. So I'd encourage you get here a little bit early and uh, say good morning to some people that maybe you haven't seen at least all week or in a while. It's good to take advantage of that. You know, we of course understand the world in which we live and the society that, that we're in, even in this part of the country, we're all very busy, right? Things happen very quickly. It's a fast-paced environment, and we know our lives are just full of busyness, and it's kind of what we're used to, and I think we all, if we were honest, are looking for ways to um, slow down, to connect more with uh, people, uh, and, um, you know, to enjoy just some fellowship and kind of help us to slow down. And so I encourage you, on Sundays, you know, if you've committed to be here, come a little bit early and get a, a few extra conversations in and come and be a blessing and tell others about what God is doing in your life and at the same time. I, I truly believe that God will bless and encourage you as well. So um, we, we, you know, here at Trinity, we do value very highly um, community. Community is really important. And so we do a lot of things together, and there's much that's happening. There's different ways to, to get together and uh, to do what these three words say, to learn, to grow, and to serve together. 
Um, find out all kinds of information on our website, trinityallenwood.com, but just, of course, even better by being here and hearing from others what's happening, being encouraged. And so these are our core values here at Trinity. Learn, grow, and serve. We learn the truth. Uh, that's We do that by opening God's Word. That is our source of, of truth. God revealed Himself to us in His Word. And then, of course, from that knowledge and that learning comes growth. And so growth doesn't just happen. We have to be intentional. And so we learn the truth, but we grow in our faith and our trust of God. And uh, we grow by encouraging each other. We grow by living it out. Uh, and uh, as we grow closer to the Lord and trusting Him more every day, then, of course, we serve. And serving one another and the world around us is just that natural outflow of the learning and the growing. So this is a, a, a process that every disciple, a follower of Jesus, goes through uh, constantly, you know, throughout their day and throughout their week. And so that's why these are important to us, because we're all about discipleship, you know, learning to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And how do we pursue discipleship? By these three things, learning the truth, growing in faith, and serving one another. Because Jesus called his uh, believers, those who have put their faith and trust in him, to be disciples, to intentionally make that choice, to say, yes, I want to surrender my life to his, and I want to live it out and walk with him each and every day. And so that's an important part of who we are. And being a disciple, again, takes intentionality. And so remember last year, we, um, uh, we kicked off our initiative, Discipleship Pathway. And so we have information out on the Connection Center about that. And if you don't have one, uh, some of that information, you haven't looked at it in a while, just remember that you want to start with this. This is our brochure about the Discipleship Pathway here. And we did a whole uh, sermon series on it last year, and it just shows the different steps of what Scripture tells us a discipleship, a disciple looks like. And, um, and so it's a, uh, it's a great tool that we have here. And uh, we started with our booklet on grace, because grace is the foundation of the Christian life. It begins with grace through the gospel. Then each and every day we need to live in the grace of God. Amen. And uh, it's not just in our salvation, but we live under the grace of God, meaning God has done all that is necessary for us, and we are simply to walk in his ways, but by his grace. And so the discipleship pathway is a way for all of us to stay on track of following Jesus in a way uh, to just recognize like, what areas of my walk with the Lord need a little bit more attention. And so it helps to, in simple ways, outline that. And so we're now working on our second resource, for the discipleship pathway as we create uh, digital resources on our website, but also print resources. And so we're working on the, the next installment is called Tell Your Story, Tell The Story. And so it's going to be an opportunity, a resource for us to tackle a couple of the cornerstone steps in the life of a disciple about how do you share your testimony with other people? How do you tell people about what God has done in your life when you tell them about Jesus? What does that look like? And you know, it's important for every believer to be able to, to be intentional about working on that, like kind of crafting that, writing it up. And as we often say, like, you know, if you get an elevator with somebody, you know, in, in less than 60 seconds, can you tell them about Jesus in your life? Now, you wish you had hours, right? But can you do that? Can you plant the seed? But then, of course, part of that 
He's not only telling your story, but telling the story, meaning sharing the gospel. What is the actual gospel? What do we need to believe in order to become saved? If the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, what does it mean to believe? What do we have to believe in? How do we share the gospel with other people? This is the thing that most Christians tremble at. I'm going to tell somebody else the gospel, right? But we are called to do that. It's really like you think about it, if we want to keep things simple in a day that's, you know, in, in which some things are just so complex, we say, okay, Jesus, what is our mandate? What are we called to do? And what's our mission? Well, we see it at the end of Matthew when he says, go into all the world and make disciples, right? Teaching them, baptizing them. He says, baptize them, but then to teach them all that he commanded us, right? And so simply that is the the mission of the church, of every Christian everywhere, is to tell others about Jesus, to make disciples. That's what that looks like. And so anyway, we're going to be working on that together. That's our next resource that we're putting together on how to um, tell your story and how to tell the story. Okay, so you'll be looking for more information on that. Um, missions, just as a reminder, you know, we create opportunities all the time to take this gospel message of grace to our community and the world around us. So just wanted to give you a quick reminder. We have what we call blessing bags out on the, the table where we have missionary um, information. Uh, and take a blessing bag. The idea behind these, if you don't know, is take one or two, keep it in your car, and um, you never know how God is going to direct you each and every day, maybe on the way to the store, on the way to work, and you might see somebody in need. And so if you have this blessing bag in your car, you can take the opportunity to hand the bag to somebody that is in need because it meets an immediate need, but it's a conversation starter as well. And then the prayer is that it would open up a conversation about Jesus who meets all of our needs, the most important need, right? And as a need to change our hearts. And so the blessing bag is just that. It's full of blessings. It's got the gospel of John in there. So it's a great thing to just hand to somebody and hopefully start a conversation. And if it doesn't, it's okay. We leave that up to the Lord. But at the very least, you have, um, you have served God. You have shown an act of kindness. And uh, you never know what God's going to use with that. So we encourage you, take a blessing bag or two. We have all kinds of supplies. We're putting more together. I think some people are doing that today as well. We want to continue to have that available to people. So on Wednesday nights, uh, we have our midweek gathering. And it uh, happens at the Allenwood Church right down the road in Allenwood. It's about a mile down the road. And we gather there from 6.30 to 7.30 every Wednesday night. And uh, during that time, the first half of our evening, uh, we, uh, myself and two other local pastors, record a podcast. It's our teaching, and we take a weekly challenge that we get from the Scriptures and live it out. And then we share our testimony about what that challenge was like and how it affected us, how it drew us closer to the Lord. And um, we share that, and then we give that challenge to you guys to see if you would be willing to take it for that following week. But then, of course, uh, we also have, as part of that gathering, just a time of discussion. So it's very, um, it's not, not only informative, but it's interactive. And so we get to have a time of discussion about what we talked about, about the scriptures. And then we end our time at about 7.30, and we have a prayer gathering. Anybody that wants to stay, don't have to. We just stay right there, and we pray. In our prayer times, church, I can tell you, for those that have been there, share that testimony. They have been dynamic. 
spirit-led and spirit-filled, and we have been praying for one another, for our churches, for our community. We've been praying for healing for people. We've been praying a lot for family members, especially adult children who are not yet believers in Lord Jesus, praying for salvation. So it's been very powerful. So I'd encourage you, uh, take an opportunity to come out on a Wednesday and check that out. But that happens on Wednesday nights, and we record that podcast. And you can find um, the uh, previous podcast episodes as we record them, uh, live stream them. You can watch them. Just go to our website, and you go to resources. You go to the podcast. It'll bring you to our YouTube channel. All right, and so there's that opportunity. And then, of course, uh, coming up in two weeks on Saturday, April 29th, uh, we have a one-day uh, Bible conference, and it's simply called this, Can I Know for Sure If I Am Saved? What does the Bible say about the assurance of our salvation? Can we really know and live in the freedom of knowing that we are secure in him? Not only that we don't ever lose our salvation, so we don't have to live in fear, but can we know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt from what the scripture says that yes, we are saved, even if we continue to sin, which we all do, and we seem like we may drift away from the Lord at times in our life with him, what does the Bible say about the assurance of our salvation? It's a very, very critical topic, and so uh, it's a free event, um, it's from 9 to 3.30. There'll be breakfast and lunch provided. So if that's important to you, come on out and uh, you don't have to pay a thing. Uh, but we're going to eat together in fellowship, but mostly we're going to be opening God's Word and exploring what it has to say. We have a couple of guest speakers that are coming into town for this, Grant Hawley and Joe Duke. Grant Hawley is from Texas. Joe Duke is a retired uh, pastor. He's the pastor emeritus at a large church in Maryland called Life Point Church, and he is now uh, joined with Grant, and they are helping to um, just promote this important topic, very simple yet profound topic of the assurance of our salvation. And so, again, it's free, but I encourage you to just register on our website. We have over 40 people already registered. We praise God. And so we'll be gathering here for that day uh, to explore what the Bible says about the assurance of our salvation. So I encourage you, if you have not yet done so and you're looking to come out, just register. Uh, but it's spread the word and tell your friends about it. What a great opportunity to invite some people that you have been telling your story with Jesus about, and uh, they can come and learn more. So that's on that Saturday. So the last couple of weeks, we, of course, have taken a break from our study of Second Peter. We had Palm Sunday, and we had, of course, last week, Resurrection Sunday, and we get to celebrate the, um, the living Jesus each and every time we get together. You know, that's why the early church gathered on Sundays, because they were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, that empty tomb we were just singing about, right? And so that's what we do. So that's a big part of what it means to be a Christian. And so uh, now as we have um, set that time aside and, and uh, gone through that, um, that Easter season, we might call it, we go back to our study of Second Peter. We like to go through books of the Bible, and um, we're going through First and Second Peter. So where we find ourselves today is Second Peter chapter 2, and we are in verses 17 to 22. So you can turn there now if you'd like. Uh, it's Second Peter chapter 2, 
starting with verse 17. All right, we're going to go through verse 22 today. And so uh, in a minute, I'll give you a uh, just a, a brief recap. I know a couple weeks is kind of hard to say, yeah, I forget Peter was telling us something about false teachers or whatever. And so I'll give you a review in just a second before we dive into those particular scriptures. But, you know, uh, on the way in this morning, like many of you, I noticed the dense fog. Did you notice the fog? And, and uh, as I, I came out uh, of our house and was driving here, I noticed the fog, especially over the Manasquan River. And then I came here and I just saw it. It was so intense over the reservoir. We couldn't even see it from here, from the, um, you know, from the parking lot. It looked like there was nothing. There was no reservoir or anything, right? It's amazing. You know it's there, but you can't see it. It's like the, the, the fog is kind of playing tricks on you, you know? And, um, you know, today is in our scripture, we're going we're gonna to see how Peter kind of describes the effects of what false teachers can do amongst the believers. It's, it's a pretty important topic that Peter's addressing. But in there, he gives us some language and idea about what that looks like and how we can be deceived. You know, um, we all are familiar with something like this. So we might look at this and say, that is a mirage in a desert. It can happen anywhere. It can happen in water. It can happen up in the Arctic. And um, we, we have a basic understanding of what a mirage is. You know, we often think about somebody in the desert lost in the hot desert and uh, <laughs> desperate for water. And they're just journeying for days and days, and all of a sudden they see something like this. And what does it look like? It looks like up ahead, there's a huge lake, that there is water, there is rescue and salvation, right? <clears throat> and you've seen it in movies, you've seen it portrayed, and you understand that as you get closer, you realize there is no water here, it's just more hot sand. But it's interesting how this works. I mean, and so you have... What happens is, like especially in a desert mirage, the sun, of course, beating down on the sand, it heats up that layer of air just above the sand. It heats it hotter than the, the layers of air just above it. And so that layer just above the, the sand is hotter than, than the layers just above it as it gets a little cooler as it goes higher. But why is that significant? See, because the light from the sun, especially in the cloudless sky, light travels in a direct line, right? But yet, when there's an obstacle in the atmosphere, like a change in the temperature, which changes the density of the air, and some of you are just like, I thought this was church. I thought we we're talking about the Bible, right? You see, we're, we're getting there, right? So light is traveling down to the ground so we can see the ground like in the picture. But of course, when the density of the air is different because it's different temperatures, what happens is the light refracts. And I think we understand that, right? It's kind of a, a basic thing of science, the light refracts, which simply means it wants to go in a straight line. That's the way our, 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 our eyes see it. But when it's coming through different densities of air because of different temperatures, it refracts. And it goes in different directions. See, that happens because of the difference in temperature. So we might see that around here like on a really hot day. We see the heat coming off of the black pavement, right? And we see that happening and it might look like there's water or something on the road, but it's not. It's because of the heat, because the air right above the, the, the ground, right above the, the roadway is hotter than just above it. And so the light 
is reflecting, is reflecting. But what happens is in this refraction, it messes with our eyes. See, because the rest of what happens really is in our brains, right? And so we think our brains are kind of wired to say, yes, light travels in a direct line. So our eyes are interpreting like in this picture, okay, that what we're seeing is actually there, but the light is not actually traveling in a direct line. It's being refracted because of the different temperatures, right, and the different levels of the atmosphere above the ground. And so, especially like this in a desert mirage, it looks like an oasis, doesn't it? An oasis, this place of water and life in the midst of a dry, dead desert, right? And so our eyes think that there's water there, but actually what's happening is in that light refraction, it's just creating a mirror. And what we're actually seeing is a reflection of the sky itself. See, so it looks like water, but it's actually a reflection of the sky. But to our eyes, it looks like life-giving water, but it's actually just the sky. See, so the sky is real, but the lake is not. It's an illusion, right? And so in our reading today, you're going to see that Peter kind of describes the false teachers in the same way that they create an illusion. They create a false understanding of what we think might be true because our eye is looking for truth, like where we believe that what we're seeing is actually there. But since the light is refracting in the same way Peter is saying, you know what, the teachings of a false teacher are not actually based on truth. That's why it's called false. So something that may seem true and right and from God is not actually that at all. And so we as believers need to be aware and discerning to make sure that what we are seeing and especially with false teaching, what we are hearing is actually the truth. So, scientifically, we know what happens in a mirage. But you know what? If we were out in this desert and we were desperate for water, don't you think we could still be tempted to follow a path to the mirage? And when we show up, what we find is not a lake full of beautiful, cool, life-giving water, but it's simply just more hot, dry sand, right? So Peter is writing, if you remember, to Christians, to believers, to warn them to grow in their faith. They have to keep growing so that they are not vulnerable or susceptible to the temptations of false teachers because these false teachings will seem like they're satisfying but they are not they are simply a mirage it might seem like an oasis like you have arrived but when you show up it's completely empty and not real at all i want to read to you our passage it'll be up on the screen but I encourage you to read it in your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be some in front of you there. You can use the Bible app on your phone if that's how you normally read. But here's what it says in 2 Peter 2, 17 to 22. Again, remember the background of what's happening here. It's important, church, that 
Peter is writing to believers who are in churches, and he, he wrote to the same group in 1 Peter. But now he's writing in 2 Peter specifically for two things. He's saying, look, please keep growing in the faith. Be in the word of God. Encourage each other. Tell others about Jesus. Grow every day and then how much you're trusting God with your, your life. He said you have to grow because there's false teachers that are growing, that are coming in among you in the churches. He says if you're not growing in your faith, you're not going to be able to recognize the false teaching. You'll be vulnerable. You'll be weak. You'll be susceptible. You'll be like the person out in the desert, desperate for water, just wanting to believe that that's a lake full of water. So he says, you don't want to do that. And so that's why he's writing this letter. And so he has already told us in the letter, he's kind of started off by giving us hope, reminding us who we are in Christ. But, and then he says, there's going to be false teachers coming. There's some now, but it's going to get worse. And he gives us a description of who they are and what they teach. Today is more about the damage they can do. And so it's a warning for all of us, but in that warning, it should be an encouragement. So look at what he says, starting in verse 17. These are, he's talking about false teachers. Again, we're picking up in, in the verses before that, 10 to 16, he's talking about the false teachers. So those are, he means false teachers. So false teachers are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Strong language, right? For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Peter has some strong and choice words for us, right, about the nature of the damage and destruction that false teachers in the church can create. Let's go through this. We'll briefly kind of unpack each of these verses as we see how Peter is developing this truth that is so important for us to understand. Here's what happens when we are weak in our faith, not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We become vulnerable, and this is the damage that can be done. So first he says, he's describing these false teachers. You know what they're like? They're like springs without water and mist driven by a storm. What does that mean? It's very descriptive language, but what he's trying to say is it's like, it may seem like there's life there. There's something of value. But when you get close enough, you realize the damage is already done, and it's completely of no value. So a spring without water is what? It's lifeless. 
It's not a spring at all. It's a, a dead spring, right? So you might see a spring in the different in the distance, but then as you approach it, you notice there's no water. Or he says it's like a mist driven by a storm. There's a mist coming and see this the water from a spring or the mist that's in the air might seem refreshing to us. We need that moisture, you know. Have you noticed like after a winter of the dry heat in your house, you look forward to some of that moisture coming back in the spring and summer air? You know, your skin was all dry and all that, and you're like, I need some of that. It's refreshing. And he's saying it's like that. It's like a mist that you see, beautiful. But then all of a sudden, it's gone in a flash because the storm is driving it away. It's there, but it's empty and meaningless for you. It has no value. That's what he's trying to say. But then he says, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Wow, that's pretty strong, Peter. <laughs> Talking about the false teachers. A black darkness. Let me ask you. Does he have to describe the darkness as black? I mean, in the original language, it says the blackness of the darkness. I think Peter's trying to make a point, isn't he? We know darkness is without light, right? But he's describing it. He's just emphasizing it, the black darkness. I think it's really, he's referring to hell, separation from God. He's saying those false teachers who are no believers at all, there is a place reserved for them. So even though damage can be done, again, he's reminding us, God will judge and have his way. And then in verse 18, he says, he goes on to describe what these false teachers are doing. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity. How about that? Arrogant words of vanity. So these false teachers are completely self-centered and prideful. They may, th they may act like they are acting on your behalf and want what's best for you, but they're doing it all for selfish gain and selfish, prideful reasons. But they're speaking out with arrogance and words that are vain. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones in error. So he's talking about the vulnerable. He's talking about the believers who have been walking with the Lord, but because of sin in their life, because they are choosing the ways of the world and not of God, they have made themselves susceptible to believing something that seems true, but is not. So, so he's talking here about the enticement of the flesh. And why is that important? Because we know elsewhere, Jesus tells us that the spirit may be willing the flesh is weak. Think about this. I want to read some other scriptures to you. Just you can listen to these. Second Peter is very similar to the book of Jude. Have you ever read the book of Jude? It's very short. There's actually no chapters. It's one long chapter. So in Jude, it's just verses because there's just one chapter. But Jude, the book of Jude, it's a short book, but it's very similar to 2 Peter. Why? Because in Jude, he's talking about false teachers. See, the book of Jude was written about six years after Peter wrote his letters. So Peter's kind of warning, like, these false teachers are coming, and this is what it looks like, and they're here. But then Jude is like six years later, like, no, they are here and entrenched in the churches. So it's a good companion read to 2 Peter to read the book of Jude. Listen to what Jude verse 12 and 13 say. Again, describing false teachers. These are men, Jude says, who are like hidden reefs 
in your love feasts, meaning when people would get together and eat and enjoy a food and fellowship, and they would love on each other and worship God. He calls them love feasts. These um, false teachers are like hidden reefs. What happens when you go out into the, the shallow waters of an ocean and there's reefs that you can't see? What happens to a ship, right? It gets stuck. It gets stranded on the reef because it couldn't see it. So he's saying false teachers are like in the waters of a church, the healthy waters, but they are like a hidden reef that will do damage because it's there, but you just can't see it. So he says these false teachers are like hidden reefs in your love feasts, and when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They're like clouds without water, carried along by winds. They're like autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. They are like wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Sound familiar? That's from Jude, verses 12 and 13. We read very similar language and words from Peter in this passage in Second Peter. So what are these two writers saying? Basically this, false teachings from false teachers will leave you spiritually empty and thirsty and more vulnerable, Jude says, like clouds without water, bring no rain. It's a vicious cycle. You won't find what you're looking for. You'll be looking for the wrong thing. It'll be like seeing a mirage in a desert. When you're desperate to find something you're looking for, make sure your eyes are on Jesus. Or what you do receive will be unsatisfying because it's not based on the truth. Scripture tells us Christ is the bread of life and he is our living water. Remember this great scene in John chapter 4, the gospel of John with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. When he asks her for a drink and she's a little confused, right? And here's Jesus talking to a woman and she's Samaritan and he's asking her for a drink and she asks about water and what are you talking about? This water that he has to offer. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the water in the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. See the difference? Jesus is saying, yeah, you can get some water from the well and it'll quench your thirst for a little while. But he's saying he is the living water. Spiritually speaking, when we believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation and we are kept in sealed in him by the Holy Spirit, then we have that living water within us that was always, it's always overflowing. You see that? And we will never be th spiritual thirsty again. But later, two chapters later in John chapter 6, we, we see that great account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people, right? And more than 5,000. And he feeds them. And he says to his followers right after this, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He's like, you're following me for the free meal is what you're doing. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do, Jesus, so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him. See, that's what it is. You believe in him who God has sent. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see? So they're asking Jesus for more. He just fed them with a few loaves and fishes. He's like, what, what's next, Jesus? Give us another sign. Do another trick for us, right? So that we'll really believe. But church, how often do we do that with God? We can look back and see all the times God has providentially and sometimes miraculously provided for us. Then after a while, we forget. And we say, God, what have you done for me lately, right? So these people are saying, oh, what are you going to do for a sign now, Jesus, so that we can believe and really see you and believe? What work do you perform? Uh, our fathers, he's kind of telling Jesus about what God had done for them in the past, as if he didn't know. They're like, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven so to eat. So they're just like, yeah, you just multiplied this, but can you send manna from heaven like God did? <laughs> Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. He's talking about himself. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, Lord, always give us this kind of bread. Like we don't want to starve ever again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will no longer hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. What a great promise and words of hope for us. We can be desperate, church, in times in our lives where we might be vulnerable to false teachings of false teachers, and it might seem like this beautiful lake in the midst of a, the desert of our soul. But we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. See, the people are like, just give us that manna from heaven. Like, give us something like that, something miraculous like that. And Jesus says, basically saying, I don't have to perform any more signs for you. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Everything you need is in me. I'm the bread of life. And he says, and he who believes in me will never thirst again, like he was saying to the woman at the well. Church, you will find no living water in human deserts, the living water comes from Jesus and him alone. We should never settle for anything less than Jesus himself and his word, because this is true and this is what is satisfying and this has lasting sustenance for us. So whatever you may be searching for, whatever you believe will fulfill your desires, only Jesus can truly satisfy your soul. Verse 18, that was verse 18, and he's talking about these arrogant words, and, you know, we have to develop this filter of discernment, church. That's what Peter's saying. He's like, keep growing in your faith so that you will be discerning. But then in verse 19, what does he say? Go on to talk about these false teachers. They promised them freedom, meaning the false teachers and their victims. He's like, he's promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Again, he's saying, the false teachers will have their day with God. 
God will judge them. But look, what he's basically saying is that these false teachers, they're hypocrites. So not only are we to be aware of what they're saying so that we can recognize it and discern it, but he's saying just look at their lives. They're hypocrites. They might be preaching against sexual immorality, but all the while living in the thick of it. They might be preaching against adultery while they're in the midst of having an affair. They might be preaching against sin while they themselves are living in iniquity. Peter calls it licentiousness elsewhere. You see, they might even tell you their words can set you free, even present a false gospel while they're actually only enslaving you to sin. What may seem like freedom can actually be enslaving. A false teacher will promise one thing while they deliver another. It's like, you know, you open the mail and there's a piece of mail that says, a check for you. Something inside of you says, I know that this is just junk mail, right? But still, you open it anyway. It looks like a check. It's got the the little window, and it looks like it's printed on check paper. It's got those, those perforated edges, and you're like, this looks like a check. I don't know. I'm not expecting any money. Maybe, maybe God's sending me money. I don't know. So you open it, and it says, you have been approved. You've been approved for a loan, 50,000. Oh, great. And then you toss it in the trash. Not that I've ever done that, or that didn't happen yesterday to me, but you know. And then you feel silly, right? That's a small example, but like, what does that look like spiritually for us when it's really dangerous for us? So something may look appealing and satisfying and life-giving when the teaching itself is actually false, pushing us away from the truth of God, and even the one delivering it, the false teacher, is simply hypocritical and then we end with this verses 20 through 22 it's all kind of like one big sentence here but peter is saying after they meaning these false teachers and even he's talking about believers who used who were like walking with god and tasting righteousness but then being led astray he's like for even after they right have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So he's, he's like describing like, okay, those who are even saved when they are again entangled by them and overcome. Like, so you've been saved and sanctified and justified in God. You're no longer a slave to sin. But he's like, okay, if you are a true believer and you're no longer a slave to sin, but yet you are intentionally, right? You are putting those chains back on and becoming entangled and ensnared in a life of sin and being overcome by it. He's like, you know what? He says the last state, meaning being ensnared by the sin, has become worse for them than the first because now you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You have known the ways of righteousness. He says, for it would be better for them not to have known that way of righteousness 
than having known it to turn away from the holy commandments handed to them. He's not saying it would have been better to not be saved. There would never be a time where it's better to not be saved. But he was talking about believers who are already saved. He's just like, it would have been better if they would have never even walked with the Lord at first because now they know better and judgment will be worse. Just as an aside, church, just reminds me of this. This is one of the reasons that Jesus, towards the end of his ministry, teaches in parables. He teaches in parables to teach a lesson, but he teaches in parables, which are, you know, stories, right, to reveal a, a truth. But he teaches in parables to keep further truth away from the ears and the eyes of the unbeliever. He was doing that specifically for the people of Israel because Jesus knew, of course, in his ultimate wisdom and sovereignty that if he continued to reveal more truth to those who had already rejected them, their punishment and judgment would be even worse. So it was even an act of mercy on Jesus' part to teach in parables so that those who didn't believe already wouldn't understand it, but those who did would then understand. You see, it's kind of the same principle, and so Peter's saying it would have been better off for those believers who were walking with the Lord to never have even tasted that righteousness in their, their life as a new Christian rather than understand what God has done for you and living and walking with him and enjoying the blessings and the fruit of that intimate relationship with Jesus and then turning your back on him and choosing the world instead of the word of God. So it said, he says, and it happened, it has happened to them according to the true proverb. And then he just ends with some more descriptive language. This proverbs, a dog returns to its own vomit. We see that in the Psalms. And a sow after washing like a cow returns to wallowing in the mire. Do you see what he's trying to say? He's like, there's something there that you know is wrong, but you return to it anyway. Church, how many of us, we have those sins or that sin in your life that just keeps coming back, that you just keep giving into? Perhaps you've been walking with the Lord for a long time and you know that, you know that you're no longer a slave and there are sins that, that really burdened you early on and they're no longer temptations for you and we praise God for that but perhaps there's something in your life that you keep giving into he's saying it's kind of like this again he's given us this strong language so his message can hit home right he's like a dog returning to its own vomit or a cow after being made clean goes right back to wallow in the mire. See, he's choosing his words purposely. He doesn't fall back into the mud. He chooses to wallow and enjoy the mud and the dirt and the mire. Because sin in the life of a believer, at the moment we give in to that temptation, it may seem good. This is good for us. Or it may seem like I won't be punished for this. We commit a sin and we recognize it. Well, we're not struck down by lightning and nobody else knows about it. This must be okay. And he's saying it's like that. You know what it's like to be clean and free from that and what your relationship with the Lord Jesus is like when you're not actively living in that sin. You're not burdened by it. 
but yet we choose to wallow again in the mire. So he's saying to us, you know what? There are false teachers. He says, don't believe it. Don't believe what they have to offer their hypocrites themselves and what they're offering might seem true and good and provide things for you. But he says it's empty and meaningless and has no value whatsoever. And how do we avoid that? We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the true Jesus of the Bible and his word. We remain in his word, staying close to him. We need to appreciate that new identity we have in him. We have within us the Holy Spirit as believers, church, to help us resist temptation. That is what the Holy Spirit does if we allow him to do it. So in conclusion, we need to keep growing in the knowledge, the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our theme verse for the year. In 2 Peter 17 you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is how Peter ends the letter we're going through. So in a few weeks, we'll get to the end of that. But I wanted to share that with you. It's just a reminder. It's how he wraps up the whole um, letter. It's how I'm wrapping up our message today. But how do we resist being led astray by a false teacher? Continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There it is. Because he says, therefore, you know, be on your guard so you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your steadfastness. He's talking to believers. But how do you do that? Okay, Peter, how do we do that? He says, grow in the grace and the knowledge. Get to know Jesus and his word more and live out the grace that saved you. Grow in those two things. If we're not learning and growing in our faith, we become weak and vulnerable to false teachers. And if we walk in the ways of Jesus and enjoy the blessings of holy living, but then we choose to return to our old ways, like the dog to its vomit or the cow to the mire and mud, acting like we are a slave to sin once again. Peter says we're worse off. We didn't even walk in the truth. So as a thirsty traveler in the desert is desperate for water, he sees the oasis that he thinks will quench his thirst and bring all that he desires, yet it is a mirage of temptation. And when you get close enough, you realize it's only dry, hot sand, which has no life in it whatsoever. Would you stand with me as I read this together? John 8, 31 to 32, Jesus says these words, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let us abide in the Lord Jesus, for that is where we find freedom.
we will be strong in our faith each and every day, not being vulnerable to the false teachings around us. So church, let us keep our eyes focused on Jesus and his beautiful word. And in him, we will grow stronger each and every day. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we just ask your blessing on us now as we leave. Oh, Father, we know that your desire is to see your children walking in love towards one another and with you. God, may we leave this place walking in love and walking in the truth. God, protect us through your spirit from those false teachings. May we grow in our ability to discern what is true and what is not. And God, in those times in our days and in our lives, when we find ourselves in those dry, hot deserts, God, may we look not to what seems to be, but may we look to what we know to be true, and that is you, Jesus Christ. For you are the bread of life, and you are the living water. We thank you for that. God, we want to walk in that truth this week. For we know that that truth is what will set us free. So God, we walk in the freedom of that truth and that knowledge, and that is true for us. Go before us now, Holy Spirit. Protect us and bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this morning, church. Thank you.